Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. If you're looking to throw some optics on your turkey gun this spring, look no further than the Vortex Defender ST. This is the red dot we're going to be running this season. We're excited about it. This thing's built like a tank, super lightweight, super long battery life, everything you need in a good turkey red dot. And if you want to get a discount on that red dot or any other Vortex Optic, go to eurooptic.com and use the code SGN10 to get a discount. That's eurooptic.com, code SGN10. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the EcoWild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar. May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you. And we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. Welcome back, everybody, to another Thursday Breakdown outro episode, whatever we call these things, at the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Uh, Jacob, how are you doing? Uh, doing well, doing well. Andrew, how are you doing, by the way? I'm, I'm doing pretty good. You man. know, I never ask you that funny. Yeah, no, no one cares how Andrew's doing. <laughs> uh, uh, this this week we had uh, Mark Haslamon. That's how you say his name. Yep. Okay, man, I'm just, I don't know why I can't get that last name right. Uh, from South Carolina. South Carolina is a state that we don't give enough love to, mm-hmm. man, which is going to change one with this episode, but we have got a banger. I mean, a good one coming out from South Carolina in a couple weeks. Like, I cannot wait. Yeah. Uh, so, South Carolina folks, your time is coming. We got a great episode coming out. But, anyways, okay, I'm getting distracted. Um, South Carolina, really unique state, uh, really kind of a cool state in the southeast i think because there's such a any of the coastal states i really like because there's such a diversity of stuff that you can hunt from you know the coastal marshes like what carl brown hunts all the way up into like i guess you'd call it upstate uh where you're getting into more hilly terrain and stuff like that 
um, Mark, he he's he's in the lower country, so he's able to take advantage of that August 15th yep. gun opener, right? Mm-hmm. Which is something that's really unique to South Carolina is that, that really early gun opener. Well, it's not even a gun opener. It's any weapon. Well, it's just open season. Open season. Yeah. Any weapon starting August 15th, which is insane. What, what's the date this is going to come out? Bananas. This will come out after august 5th this will be so, out like august 17th so or something like by that. by the time this episode is out they are already deer hunting yeah. with either a rifle muzzle or Dude, they're out there hammering whatever. deer with freaking seven mags and like 300 wind mags that, right sound, that sounds so amazing to me like uh, as an alabama boy who loves rifle hunting i'm like dude, dude. i, I want to go and experience that at some time at some point but the problem is not the problem but the only situation is it's, it's private land only yeah um i know the public land i think there's a little bit delayed season there uh on, on the public but yeah you'll start seeing on social media especially like some of the like the running gun groups and you know some of these southeastern uh, south carolina groups if you if you're part of any of those guys are killing big bucks mm-hmm. in velvet like right now like when this episode comes out there will probably be a, a bunch of mario on social media oh 100 um, so mark it, will probably have killed one by now <laughs> probably, maybe maybe <laughs> if, he's, if he's hunting early in the week absolutely so um you know it's going to be super interesting and again this is a fun episode because i've actually i've getting like some of these guests we've had on recently i've been talking to mark for nearly two years about trying to come on the show and he's an interesting guy um you're actually going to see one of his hunts come out this fall uh on first lights youtube channel uh the method which we were part of that for in georgia we filmed that in georgia but um he was part of that hunt they did in south carolina in august during during that opener he killed a really nice buck um during that season during that opening season and uh, it's just kind of fascinating kind of hearing from his perspective of where he's had success now this is gonna be an episode that you know there's gonna be some people who are like well, man there's no challenge when it comes to gun hunting you know early season august you know velvet deer and i've experienced this in other states and i will say definitely it's uh very challenging no well i mean sometimes it is sometimes it's not it depends on what the pressure's like like last couple times i've done it, it's been miserable they but, learned um but, but the, the the thing is that I found interesting about Mark and kind of just diving into this conversation is with his family farm or two farms that they have, you know, how he's kind of gotten away from necessarily just the field edge hunting that a lot yeah. of people would tr- tr- traditionally do and kind of getting back and, and getting a little bit tired to the bedding cover and catching them slipping through these pines after they mm-hmm. leave the, the, the fields in the morning and killing majority of his bigger bucks in the mornings. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I found that interesting too, and that's one reason I was kind of excited to talk to him because of that whole early season betting thing that I think is applicable in other places besides you know just this this gun opener in South Carolina, uh, where he he's talking about the specific kind of pines that they like to bet in, and this is one of the things that I've been talking about a little bit over the last couple of weeks, like both on the show, but just with like my hunting buddies too, is that certain edge pine that seems to be like really prime bedding where I feel like they really use it all year and they just like being in there. And it's the kind of pines that Mark was talking about. And it's the pines that are tall enough that there's shade in there mm-hmm. and it's not super hot. Um, but they're still young enough that there's really nice undergrowth and you can't bow hunt it really. I mean, I guess you could go in there and like clear out like a little tiny area and mm-hmm. try to bow hunt it. But practically speaking, you're not bow hunting it. You're not gun hunting it. Uh, and so it's just like that kind of little sanctuary kind of area. And also, my buddy Kyle Lieberger at Native Habitat Project actually just put out a reel that I think is very applicable to this, where he's talking about 
he he did a reel and it's like why is it so hot outside Mm -hmm. and he's got a a little thermostat thing and it says it's 94 degrees outside like ambient air temperature 94 degrees it's pretty hot and uh then he gets like a little temperature gun and he goes to like a like a lawn basically and takes the temperature the ground temperature of the lawn and it's like 113 the the concrete's like 130 degrees then he goes to a tall grass prairie you know taller you know more native habitat the ground temperature is 80 degrees then he goes into basically shaded woods and the ground temperature is like 60 degrees and that's that kind of ties into what we've talked about a little bit like with the beds we found a couple weeks ago mm-hmm. with what we talked about with mark like they're going into those pines because that ground temperature like if you just go in there and you just lay on the ground it is it's like dang this is kind of nice yeah noticeably. especially you got like a nice breeze going through there mm-hmm. it's noticeably cooler and more comfortable and it's like the deer are gonna want to be in that you know and he and that's what he's targeting in early season so that was like that was probably one of my favorite parts of this conversation just because i find that really really interesting and it's just another small thing that you can pick up on that'll make a difference because i don't feel like they're just something we experienced in georgia last year a lot of the thickets i was initially hunting around were i think didn't have enough canopy cover there wasn't enough shade in there for the deer to really be in it and when i kind of switched it up towards the end of the week that's when i ended up shooting that buck Mm -hmm. you know uh which that that buck will actually be on the method series from first light that you just mentioned that i think it's dropping sometime in august it maybe it's out by the time this comes out i don't know i don't know i don't know exactly when they're dropping it but it should be out pretty soon yeah but um yeah and another thing that you know we kind of discussed upon was the the idea of betting where he's at like you kind of just mentioned on this a little bit but he's like you know those clear cuts are such a big factor for him and he's like you know it seems like they're kind of like just on those edges mm-hmm. um and he's like one thing that was kind of interesting he's like i'm not trying to get in there in his bedding area i'm trying to catch him through those transition areas where they're coming from that destination food source back to the bedding and one another thing he mentioned that was i thought was really important that he touched on was the only not the only reason but one of the major reasons why his hunting style works again catching coming back to the bed because he knows there is a very defined destination food source they're going to which is some of the bigger fields they have because they farm their property some of the bigger fields they have or you know whether you're it's a bait station or food but there's a very large destination food plot or, or food source that you're catching the deer leaving mm-hmm. going back to a very designated bedding area yeah. And he talked about that being a huge part because he's, he's like, if you're down in other parts of the low country in South Carolina where, say, it's like there's not as much ag or any ag, you're hunting little food plots and just a ton of thick cover, it's going to be a lot harder to find that pattern where you're catching that buck going to a specific food source and going back to a specific bedding area based mm-hmm. off that food source location. Um, so that I thought was kind of interesting as well. And to me, that almost, there was like a similarity there between not even necessarily like other places in the Southeast, but if you start looking at some of these Midwestern hunting opportunities, you start going to Illinois, Iowa, parts of Missouri, Kentucky, where you have that super destination, large destination food source, yep. specifically talking ag, and you find like the, the best bedding cover, you know, thicket area, you know, adjacent, and it might be a couple hundred yards from there, it might be a half a mile from there. But you can kind of get in between them and have that success. And you hear a lot of guys from the Midwest, that's what they're doing. You're catching bucks, uh, you know, kind of cruising where those does are going into those, you know, food area, or those feeding, destination feeding areas, going back to the bed. And those bucks are kind of cutting them off in the middle. And that's where a lot of these guys set up. Mm-hmm. He's kind of doing the same thing down in South Carolina, just yeah. at a different point of the season, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of interesting. But also, another thing he talked about, which was kind of um, fascinating, was like the size of the batcher groups that they have down there. 
He's like, you know, sometimes, you know, you'll have like an age range where it's like, you know, you have a bunch of like those teenage bucks, those year and a half, two year old buck kind of hanging out. And you may have a three or four year old buck with them, but it's like sometimes those bigger bucks, they're all kind of like in their own little group. Yeah. So it's like, you know, they may intermingle, but it's like they kind of go to like those, those four or five, six year old bucks kind of doing their own thing. It's kind of separate from those younger bucks, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting. But he's also talking about like the one of the most eye-opening things, I know we're covering a whole bunch of stuff real quickly, but eye-opening things down there is how many deer they have per square mile. Oh, yeah. He started talking about like hammering does. And yeah. like doses and it opened like September, I think it's like 10th or 15th, something like that. How many does and how many deer they have per square mile? Like he's talking upwards of 50 to 60 deer per square mile, which is like hard to comprehend. That's a lot of deer. I mean, I'm sure there's a, probably a couple places in Alabama. It's you, almost you can that have high. some fun with some does in that in that. Kind yeah, of stuff. and he's talking about that they hammer like a unbelievable amount of deer and, and does specifically on those properties. But the reason why is they're trying to l- eliminate, you know, some of those that competition when it comes to food. When mm-hmm. it gives your bucks a better opportunity to be able to put on their full potential when it comes to their uh, antler potential. Yep. Um, and dude, this is like I just kind of go back to the episode we did with uh, Alan Summerford about his property up in Kentucky or up in Tennessee. Where they came through, he select cut a, a lot of that 300 acres they bought. It was all big hardwoods, and he started hammering the does. And just like in a matter of like six years, how much of a difference body weight he was seeing on his mm-hmm. does, but also his bucks, his bucks antler potential, how much they were like really changing in six years. Yeah, it's just fascinating. It's like I can't imagine. Like I don't know what the deer density is probably up there. Probably I don't know 20, 30 deer per square mile. Yeah, and where Mark's at is double, nearly triple that. Which that's is insane. insane. That's insane. That's crazy. Like, it's just, I, I can't even imagine. Uh, but, I mean, what's your thoughts on, like, just that opportunity of, like, places like South Carolina have that opportunity to be open season so early? Oh, I think it's awesome, man. Like, we got really excited earlier because we uh, we got, we got were looking at the Alabama regs, which just dropped, mm-hmm. like, a couple of days ago. And we were going and looking at our deer seasons, and we're like, oh, we open on October 14th this year instead of October 15th. You know, like, goofy stuff like that. But, and there's also a place in Alabama that is... Open September 30th. Which is, is that the first time ever? Like, have we ever... That's had- the first time I ever have heard of Alabama opening. Because my whole life growing up, it was October 14th or 15th, depending mm-hmm. on when the Saturday fell. And that's when both season opened. And it was statewide, so we used to not have any zones whatsoever. And then they started breaking up into zones, and then they started changing seasons based on zones, based on because our rut's just mm-hmm. kind of all over the place. And so some of those areas that have an earlier rut, they opened on September 30th this year, which is pretty cool. Like, that's that's like way early for an Alabamian. You know, like, I know Georgia opens early, South Carolina, all these places, but for us Alabama boys, we're like, oh my gosh, September. <laughs> you know? Oh, it's coming. It's oh, coming. That's so crazy. I mean, it, uh, that is that is literally so crazy. I saw that and I was like, no freaking way. Oh, I know. I was so excited. It's, Deer it's season fun- is coming, and, baby. And it's funny because, like, guys in Georgia are like, even southern south carolina they're like that's like, cute they're like that's hilarious yeah <laughs> we've, we've, already, we've already been hunting for 15 20 days by this point you know especially it's, georgia it's funny because i didn't know about the south carolina season being so early until social media oh yeah you know yeah, and, and then a couple years back when all these like hunting facebook groups kind of like really started to get going that i was in it'd be like mid-august and people would be posting all these velvet deer from South Carolina. I'm like, what? They'd be posing with a rifle? I'm a like, blaze what orange? are they doing? Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. Uh, yeah, that's a cool opportunity. I mean, there's no public land opportunity, but... Uh, it almost makes me wonder. Like, dude, if we got some listeners out there that... You got some property down there in that area listen, of the state. Put, putting the call out. We might, we, listen, I, 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 we might have to work something out. Let's get you to Alabama. Let's come hunt South Carolina early season. Yeah, because we were talking about going to South Carolina anyways. Uh, yeah. Listen, we got some... 
we, we have not found that many South Carolina hunters like that we wanted to interview in the past. Until but that changed. It changed so we, quickly. We hit the mother load, baby. So we might actually make a trip to South Carolina I'm, at I, some point. I want that, to. That's what I was telling in, in twenty. So the, we, the guest who we will not name yet. Yeah, yeah. We were telling him last night because he was telling us all these guys that he knows. I was like, we will come to you. Yeah. We will drive to you. So, so, so we've already got our twenty twenty three slash four season you know already booked of like where we're gonna hunt this year yeah but 2024 2025 season south carolina is on the dock south carolina where yeah it is on the yeah. dock like the, like oh my gosh man and, and it ties in with the whole like kind of tour of the south we want to do yeah you know, like we want to hunt all the states in the southeast yep and so we're checking some of those off this year yep. I, actually i don't think we're checking off any new state new to M- us mississippi oh yeah i haven't hunted mississippi before so yeah mississippi we'll be checking but you off never hunted arkansas before yeah, I guess I've never hunted Arkansas either. Yes, you got to stretch. I've just out. been living vicariously through you. I feel <laughs> like I've hunted Arkansas. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I'm very excited about uh, hunting South Carolina now. Uh, just, I mean, oh my gosh, like, gosh, South Carolina, it, baby. It's such. A, I mean, there's so many cool states and cool hunting opportunities in the Southeast. That's like you don't really realize until you start talking to people. Yeah. And you start hearing about them on some podcasts or stuff like that. Um, and it's like. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, hunt. And I know we got a lot of listeners in East Texas. East Te- Texas is another state yeah. I'm very interested in. Yeah, we're we're looking at Texas. But uh, but some of the options they have there for the for the, like the draw quota uh, exotic hunts they have, like exotic game animals, for like hunting neil guy, mm. uh, yeah, axis deer, and all that kind of stuff. Yep, um, it's just fascinating. And I think non residents can apply for some of those. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's just there's so many cool hunting opportunities throughout the southeast, and um, there's one hunt we won't name. But you put in for it for a long time. Oh, yeah. We're not talking about that hunt. Yeah. Not talking about it. Y'all just got to go figure it out what but, we're talking about. But we, we've had listeners do that hunt before. Mm-hmm. And actually, one of our past guests on the has, podcast has done that hunt. Has done a hunt and killed a really nice something. What that is. Yeah. Oh. Uh, so I want to do that. The, do you, you want to do that hunt? Yeah. Like, but, does that interest you at all? Yeah. But I've, I've heard very mixed results of that hunt. It is a very hard hunt. Yeah. Very hard. Very, very hard hunt. Very miserable. Uh, not without going into in detail, but just like to, to put in perspective, I think they give out. We're not naming this hunt. We're just not doing it. But they give out, I think, two hundred tags, mm-hmm. and they might kill one or two, yeah. maybe three. On a good year, they kill three. Yeah. So, anyways, but it's freaking cool, man. It's yeah. a cool opportunity. I would really like to go do it sometime. Well, because like, I don't have any more points. So if you want to do it, we need to start building points. Can we start now? Or yeah. Is it too late. I, I think we can. Oh no, it's August. No. Actually, you can do it over the counter, but we're not going to talk about that. Okay. Shh. All right, let's talk about something else. Let's talk about something else. Well, I was say other some other cool hunting opportunities in the southeast, which are these are like super hard to draw, but like Tennessee yep. as a as a quota elk hunt, Arkansas as a, as a draw elk hunt. Now, I think Arkansas. I don't think non-residents can put in for that one, but I know Tennessee non-residents can put in for the Tennessee hunt. And of course, Kentucky. Kentucky, which you put in for for a long time, and it's all a, of the years. It's a hundred percent lottery, so it's like just random draw. I, but it's funny because I know I know several people who have drawn that hunt. Well, I know if you're a resident in Kentucky, which if you're a listener in Kentucky, it's something you ought to probably start doing. The draw odds for residents. If I, I can't remember the data, but it's like significantly higher. Oh yeah, opportunity than a non-resident, of course. But like I've met a couple guys before. Um, I'm trying to think. Might have been some of the BHA guys, or something like that, mm-hmm. that had drawn that hunt, like drawn a bull tag that was a resident, like twice. Yeah, yeah. 
and like gone and killed like a really nice bull elk in, in Kentucky, which just mm-hmm. you think about a cool hunt, man. Like, no, that's oh, like that is my dream hunt. For that, sure. Yeah, and this is like you talk about so hard to get like get a bull tag. Like, like a cow tag would be awesome, but like get a bull tag there. Oh, dude, it would just be unreal. I would be all over that. Yeah, and oh, man, this yeah, this it, it's so crazy. Like with the opportunities in the southeast. Um, but like with South Carolina, it's like the cool thing about South Carolina is like there's such a passion for deer hunting there because they've had deer there for so long. Um, and also another interesting thing about South Carolina, which is, you know, you have other states that have like dog hunting, but like there is such a culture of dog hunting in that lower part of, this, uh, of South Carolina, mm-hmm. like in the coastal area, yeah, uh, in the southern part of the state, that is just like, I mean, I don't know how many other states like compare as in like the area that that's allowed for dog hunting there compared to like other states like Alabama. There's a few spots you can hunt with dogs in Alabama, different areas. Uh, I think parts of Arkansas, you can still do it. I think North Carolina, you can still do it. Mm-hmm. Do you think, can they do it in Florida? I can't remember. Um, yes, I, I'm pretty sure. Maybe. Okay. And then does Georgia allow dog hunting anymore? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. So like but they might, I don't know. So that, that's something else. And then of course, Mississippi as well has dog hunters. I'd love to get on a good dog hunt. Just try it. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I've I never done it. I've been invited and yeah. I haven't been able to make it happen. Uh, I know it's super controversial and whatnot, but I don't really care. I just want to go experience it because yeah, it, it is a very Southern, very, uh, a lot of heritage around it. Yeah. You know? It's like a. Like this, it is the oldest school way of like, uh, I guess like culturally deer hunting the southeast. And a lot of old school guys that we know who are real successful deer hunters came from that. Yeah, came. They from that came era. from dog hunting. Yeah, and they got out of dog hunting and got into other stuff, and mm-hmm. that you know became like amazing woodsmen. Not that they weren't great woodsmen when they were dog hunters, but they just expanded their horizons. You know. And I think I think it was I think it was Wes Moe that talked about when he had dog hunted back because he didn't get into deer hunting until he was in college i think it was that that age range i think it was west killed a really i think it was a big 11 point if i remember right yeah maybe mixing them up maybe travis Murray, but i'm pretty sure it's west and talking about like like some of the lessons that some of these guys learned is like how those big mature bucks they don't just run out in front of all the dogs oh, they, they slip they, out the back they, they try to slip around the back side um and, and try to get past the dogs and you know you have like a pusher or somebody that's like you know stan hunter who's you know, the dogs already came by. Next thing you know, this big buck's kind of coming back the yep. opposite direction where the, the dog just ran to. That's the guy who kills the big one. Yeah. Mr. It, Benny's got a story like that. The big, that he's got a huge eight point on his wall that he killed like that. Oh, really? Yeah. It came slipping up out the backside and he just he noticed it. It was like 20 yards from him and he, he, uh, shot him with some buckshot. He, he was, he was like the rear man or whatever on that drive and that's, that's how he killed that that's buck. That's cool. I mean, that's there's some big deer in Alabama though they get killed with dogs. Oh, there's some nice ones. There, that get there killed. was there was one last year that I got that saw got posted on social media that was. I'm like, you killed that with dogs? Because well, it, it seems like, and even like in South Alabama, yeah, yeah, where you kind of assume there's no big deer, they kill some hammers. Hammers. Yeah. I mean, we talked about that at. Just because you're in South Alabama doesn't mean there's freaking big, mondos down. Yeah, there. like big body, big deer, big antler bucks. Um, and there's actually there's a listener to the podcast. Israel, which yep. court, you know, of course, we saw him at the show. Saw him at the show. He talked about that on, you know, how to use some of that dog pressure to your, mm. like, to your uh, advantage. Yeah, on some of those places. Yep, got me interested. Like, you know, you still got a tag come, you know, mid late January. Might have to change some stuff up, and you know, you're not necessarily hunting with the dogs, but you're kind of using that to your advantage. Yeah. Um, yep. It's very and true. they're talking about some of the deer they kill down. I was like, oh my gosh, man! Like, mm-hmm. very impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's so that's the thing. So like, you know, in the upper Midwest, kind of like the, just the crazy the, the differences between the southeast and like other parts of the country. But you go to like the Midwest, 
and like deer drives are so huge like during yeah. gun seasons like you know iowa illinois or not well i guess illinois too but uh wisconsin minnesota michigan you know all those states they do a lot of these deer drives where they, they can't use dogs <clears throat> but they're using you know hunters that are just pushed to the woods making a lot of noise kicking deer up and shoot them and I, like when i was up in michigan uh for the mobile hunters expo i brought this up to a couple guys up there because they were talking about like the deer drives it just puts up so much pressure on deer and i'm like you could never do that down here where we're at there's so much thick cover there's a reason yeah. why like the hounds were used uh, is because there's so much thick cover like you can't really push through but a dog could run through it yeah uh same thing like rabbit hunting like you're guys in the upper midwest like some guys will hunt with beagles but a lot of guys they just walk fence rows and stuff kicking rabbits up and shooting them mm-hmm. you could do that down here but you're not going to kill a bunch of rabbits no you're going to kill zero rabbits you might kill one you might you, might, you yeah. might kill one if you get lucky but like there's a reason why like again that dog culture is so big especially with small game but also like even with the deer aspect so big in the southeast just because that a abundance of extremely yeah. thick cover um in that hunting style and this is again kind of the difference like up in the upper midwest like they have some really thick areas but if you have enough guys walking through those marshes like you're dan and fault like they'll do uh deer drives up there through the marshes <clears throat> and you might not be able to shoot that deer he might run right by it 15 yards but you can't shoot him because the cattails are too big yeah but you get opportunities it's like down here it's like dude it, that would be so tough well, what is your just to stir the pot okay. a little bit um you hear you you'll hear a, like a, a decent number of people out there who will say like when it comes to dog hunting or deer drives uh there's there's not really any skill involved with it there it doesn't take like woodsmanship or whatever like they're just kind of going out pushing deer and, and they just don't see the skill in that mm-hmm. like i i disagree with that because uh, there's as much skill as, as people put into it. Like maybe a lot of the people that do it aren't putting a lot of thought into what they're actually doing, but you could say the same thing about a guy who's just going and climbing like a random tree on the WMA with a climber, mm-hmm. you know, like how much skill is he actually like putting into what he's doing? Like, like it's talking about luck versus skill. Yeah. Like luck versus skill. And like, cause a lot of guys I know who have done deer drives, I think it was Travis Murray is actually one of them here in the South mm-hmm. where they're, they're doing like, like a, like a little, small scale two-man drive where travis is talking about not walking through a thicket making a bunch of noise but slipping through a thicket because that's what gets the deer up because then they don't actually know where you're at you know and he's and he's got his uncle or whoever he was talking about with him Mm -hmm. positioned on an escape route and travis is slipping through i think this is travis Mm -hmm. is slipping through that thicket not making a lot of noise, making enough noise where the deer knows that he's in there, but slipping around and trying to basically sneak up on the deer. Because that, the the fact that the deer knows that you're there but doesn't know where you are, makes them want to get up. And if you just go crashing through, you might walk within ten feet of that deer, and he might not get up if yeah. he's got good enough cover. Something like that. I'm like, that's that is woodsmanship, this woodsmanship. to me. Yeah. Like they're 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 they know their escape routes. Uh, they they understand the buck behavior and like what they're doing to like get this deer to do a certain thing. Like I I think there's something to that. So I'll say this: it's also I think it's culture culture difference yeah. um, between bow hunting and firearm hunting. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So if anybody's a hardcore bow hunter, I can already hear him say, "Well, there's no skill involved shooting a deer with a rifle," and you hear that all the time. Especially there's a bigger there's a bigger I think culture of gun hunting in the southeast mm-hmm. than there are in other parts of the country. Um, I mean, some. Well, I'll take that. I mean, there's a big culture, especially in the upper Midwest gun hunting. Sometimes, you know, some of those states is a really short window of time, so everybody goes out there and does it. But I think it's in the southeast, it's less frowned upon than someone in the upper Midwest. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. As in, like, you know, just hunting with a firearm. Um, but you know, with that, I think 
there's different. It's like anything. Like you can find, you know, I'm not gonna say bow, but you can have guys with, with rifles down in the southeast that just get lucky and they kill a big deer. But it's not like repetitive. Yeah. Um, and it's almost like you kind of luck into it. And then you can mm-hmm. find guys in other states that maybe do the same thing, but they have a skill set where they're able to replicate that every single year. Yeah. And to me, that's like highlighting a skill set. I feel like the same thing could be said if you were using dogs or doing man drives of just learning if you do get a big buck up what is he more likely to do and how to position yourself and i'm not just saying just initially sitting yeah. on a roadway but like israel's telling me with the uh you know gps cars and these dogs when those guys when those deer or when those uh dogs are making that loop with that deer that if if that deer whether it's a buck or doe crosses and those dogs cross the same spot more than twice mm-hmm. some of those dudes will run down in there when the when the dogs are off half a mile doing that big loop and get down there where it's crossed the creek multiple times oh. and sit there waiting for that deer to come back through and they'll kill them that way that's how we do rabbits yeah too, exactly ex- yeah, exactly the same thing which to me that's a you know you're using technology and advantage of that when it comes to the uh, gps collar but with rabbits uh, you know, those beagles aren't making that big of a loop. Well, it might be a couple hundred yards at the most, but you can hear when they do that loop a couple times, like, okay, they keep crossing somewhere down here in this thick pine thicket. Yeah. I'm going to dive off in there. Down and in I've there. Killed, we've killed a bunch of rabbits doing that. That's how we kill most of our rabbits, yeah, really. Like, like and you, we're not using like a GPS collar on the beagles or anything. You're just listening. You to just them. listen to them and kind of pinpoint, like pull on X, pinpoint kind of where you're hearing them at. And when you get to that 75 yard range, like maybe they just, they circle just outside of range, like, okay, I got to get a little bit closer. And, yeah. and then you wait for them to circle back around. And when he comes back around, you kill a big yeah. old swamp rabbit. Yeah. And sometimes they're right on that rabbit, and sometimes they are way behind that rabbit. Yeah. Sometimes they're five minutes behind that thing. Yep. You know? So, that, I mean, that, that is, a, a I think, part of some woodsmanship skills of, like, understanding mm-hmm. the situation and how to key in on that um, and, and really play off of that. Um, but, it's again, just, it goes back to being curious, too. Like, what you always say about, like, being genuinely interested in, like, different tactics mm-hmm. or, or, like, what someone can teach you, it's like, the guy who that's his thing is like is deer drives mm-hmm. but he does it at a, at a higher level like he's really think about what he's doing and he understands what he's doing mm-hmm. like there's something to take from that yeah like that guy understands deer behavior in some way that i don't yeah. so i want to learn from him you know? especially to me some of those dudes that are extremely successful with it uh with dogs mm-hmm. probably have such a and i haven't talked to a lot of those guys because i don't know a lot of those dudes yeah but if i had to guess some of the guys that have been doing it forever that really understand deer behavior when they are when when they are hitting exit routes yes they probably have a skill set of just learning like you know every especially bucks are they all act a little bit different but traditionally if you get a big buck up and he's running what what is he going to be doing and mm-hmm. what kind of coverage is he going to go through and how is he going to backtrack or take low spots kind of slipping past the dogs or anything yeah. like that and keying on that and killing some of those bigger deer because um, again you see some of those dog hunts they do down like in south alabama and some of the bucks they're killing, they're not killing two or three-year-old bucks. I mean, I'm sure they do, but, like, yeah. you see some of these deer, they're killing these much older bucks, big bucks. And to me, like, yeah, you definitely can luck into it. But if you found a dude that who was doing it consistently and mm-hmm. kind of figured out a way to, like, be successful with it, I think that's just something interesting that could be a takeaway, even if you're not a dog hunter. But, like, what is a takeaway that he's learned from, you know, when the pressure gets up yeah. and the bucks are slipping out? how he likes to set up or she likes to set up in those positions in order to get shot opportunities. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. But also I think the other controversial aspect of uh, dog hunting is the whole shooting at running deer, which is, yeah, the, I mean, when you say controversial, like, like, are you talking about from a standpoint of like why people don't like it or why it, it's eventually going to get banned? No, no, I think why some people don't like it is yeah. the whole idea of like you're shooting at a running deer, and you know when it comes to, and again, I'm playing kind of devil's advocate with it. Um, some people 
question the whole like ethics aspect of like shooting at a running deer yeah versus like you know you trying to get a deer to stop or you know shooting mm-hmm. deer with your bow or something like that but uh anyways it's just I, again i don't have two thoughts on it you know for it or against it but it's something i would definitely especially in some of these states like alabama where it's like solely getting chipped away because of issues especially with the property owners and dogs and property owners yeah. and also from we know some guys that run dogs you know there's there's bad apples in every group okay yeah oh and, yeah and it's like you know some of the guys that are doing it right mm-hmm. you've got guys that are also doing it wrong and they're and, and they're gonna screw it up for everybody it's gonna screw it up for everybody Houndstooth Game Call's Dixie Hen Slate was just voted the overall best turkey call by Field and Stream Outdoors, and trust me, it's super easy to run and be extremely dynamic when you're in the turkey woods. Now, we've mentioned a couple of these calls in the past, like the Spur Master and the Success Call in a past episode with both Gary Vines and Lyle Gilbert of Houndstooth Game Calls. And it was funny enough, y'all actually bought every Spur Master call and Success Call they had. Now, pay attention to their website. They're going to have some more come up in stock in the next few days. So when they come available, make sure you get one if you did not purchase one before they sold out last time. Both the Spurmaster and the Success Call are fantastic for hunting high-pressure turkeys, whether you're on a hunting club where you have a lot of other members hunting those same turkeys, or if you're on public land. Again, both of those calls will make you sound a little bit different from everybody else and be a lot more subtle in your calling technique and be able to really help close those distance with those gobblers. So if you want to give Houndstooth Game Calls a try, go to houndstoothgamecalls.com. Use the promo code SOP24. Again, promo code SOP24 for 15% off houndtoothgamecalls.com. True Lock Chokes has been made in Georgia since 1981 and offering a wide range of chokes, over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities. You might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a True Lock Choke, and it's to improve your shotgun performance. Absolutely guaranteed. And as a great example, we have Andrew Maxwell here. And, uh, Andrew, you've had some pretty good luck, again, kind of switching out chokes and trying out the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. So, Andrew, what's been your experience so far? Yeah, I've always, I've used the same choke for several years now. I never really thought much of it, and I got the True Lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at uh, 30 and 50, and then I switched to the True Lock and changed from 30 to 50. And the 50-yard pattern on my gun with the True Lock choke is unbelievable like everybody's jaws were dropping like when we were out there with mike and sam we were all super impressed i mean it's throwing a better pattern at 50 now than it was throwing at 40 before my old choke and andrew you're shooting the precision hunter choke from true lock it's a great option same chokes i have in my shotgun so guys if you want to give true lock a shot this spring you can head over to truelockchokes.com that's t-r-u L-O-C-K chokes.com. You can also use the promo code Southern at checkout at truelockchokes.com and save 10% on your order. Again, give TrueLock a shot this spring, especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun and shoot with a more deadly pattern with TrueLock. We, we do know a couple uh, dog hunters and, and guys who grew up doing that and guys who still kind of have their hands on it today. Mm-hmm. And I've even went the Alabama Dog Hunters Association. They do public land cleanups, or they have in the past. I went to one of them, and we, we filled up two roll-off dumpsters full of trash off National Forest. Mm-hmm. And that was the dog hunters, man. And they're trying to improve their image and show, like, hey, like, you know, quit taking away our right to dog hunt, which I get. But at the same time, and these same guys will tell you that, you know, I've talked to some, like, leadership in that organization and guys who are just really involved with it. And at the end of the day, if you've got a group of 10 guys who go cut their dogs loose on someone else's property Mm. and then go drive to the public land three miles away and wait for the dogs, like, it's going to get banned. You can't do that, you know? Like, and, and... 
as long as those guys are doing that kind of thing, you do it on the wrong person's property and, and they run it up the chain and, and get people in Montgomery involved, it's going to go away. Yep. You know, that is sad because it is like a, it's a heritage thing. And I know people have strong opinions about it, but I just hate to see it go, you know, like, because it, it's, it's, it's like a, it's a cultural thing, you know? Now, flip side, let's take another devil's advocate there. I also feel bad for the <laughs> landowners. Oh, the small yeah. landowners in adjacent, like smaller, you know, you get a hundred acres, less than a hundred acres. And maybe you don't dog hunt, mm-hmm. but your neighbor, they have a big club and their dogs are constantly running your property that I can see that being extremely frustrating as exactly. well. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that's the thing too. Like if, if that's how it's going to be, like, you don't, I don't think you have a choice, but to you take it away. I mean, cause you can't just like infringe on that guy's rights, you know, like his property, his private property rights. Like if you're just going to crap all over that guy every year, well, what do you expect? Mm-hmm. Of course, of course, it's going to go away. Yeah, you know, and, and it's just the the bad apples kind of ruin it for everyone. So it's it's a very controversial topic, you know. And I, I don't necessarily have an opinion one way or the other. My only like, I guess, thought on it is like, it's it's sad to see it go. Yeah. You know, once it, it eventually goes, and like, unfortunately, I think it will. But well, also on the flip side, you got a lot of people that are happy. Yeah. For it to go as I well. Say, I preface all this to say also that. Um, then I'm also glad that we don't run dogs on my property. Yeah, no, I agree. Like, like on on my hunting club. Yeah, you know, because I, I don't necessarily want to be in a dog hunting club. That being said, we have in the past went out of our way and traveled to areas mm-hmm. and hunted places that are dog hunted and had great hunts there. You know, uh, so I don't know, man. It's just it's complicated. It's a it's a it's a complicated thing. So uh, at the end of the day, like the solution to it is you have designated places where you can dog hunt, and you have you know, dog handlers who uh, train their dogs well and they can control their dogs. And the I know the group in South Alabama does a really good job with that, where mm-hmm. their their dogs are like whistle broke or whatever, mm-hmm. and they can watch them on the GPS collar. And when they approach that property line, they can call those dogs off. And that is possible. And I've talked to guys who do that with their dogs on a large scale, where they're running a bunch of dogs mm-hmm. and they're and they're not having any landowner complaints. Mm-hmm. Like if it's gonna persist into the future, it has to be like that. Yeah. You know, like you're gonna have to introduce technology into it. And uh, you know, it kind of it sucks. You know, it is what it is. But I know some guys like, you know, I, I've heard people complain about that. Like, well, so you're gonna force me to buy a twelve hundred dollar collar and and do all this new stuff? And it's like, well. Like, I don't know. We're kind of at that point. I don't know what the solution is to it. You yeah. Know? Uh, and, there, and there's like a lot of tension between a, a lot of people about it, especially, you know, in Montgomery and, and elsewhere, mm-hmm. like the people on the dog hunting side and the people who are against the dog hunting. And, and there's just, man, there's some drama going on there. Yeah. For sure. But it's well, what it is. But in addition, I do want to go experience it before anything yeah. like significant happens with it going away. Yeah. I really would like to go do it. It'd so, be fun. I don't know. Maybe that is something we try to do this year because I know we get some context we probably could do it with and go with some of these guys that actually, that are doing it right. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And, and kind of see because I, I would love to see like I just love dogs and like especially after having like our dogs and upland hunting and stuff. Yeah. Just kind of seeing the applications that dogs can be used for. Like I want. I really want to. And we've got context. We will do this. Go do a bear hunt with dogs. Yeah, that'd be fun. Um. And experience what that's like as well, which is the same kind of situation, you know, if you're running on a big enough piece of private land, you know, you're talking about four, I mean, three, four, five, six thousand acres, you know, you can get away from some of that stuff. Or if you're running a big piece of public land, you can kind of get away without having to worry so much mm-hmm. with property boundaries. But just to experience what it's like, you know, hound hunting, both for bear and then also kind of the deer aspect, I think it would just be interesting. Um, and, and kind of, again, even highlight some of that culture aspect with it, which is a very, again, controversial culture if you're not in that 
small minority group yeah definitely definitely well um i'd say we probably start the pot there um might hear about that uh let's get over some q a (laughs) so real quick guys uh on the q a's uh so we've been trying to do this on each outro or each uh thursday breakdown episode um and how you can go submit these q a's don't message us on social media or anything like that either go to the website the southern outdoorsmen.com and fill out the q a form on there or you can click down the show notes of the podcast scroll down on this podcast and you can click the link down there and then get these submitted. And we've had some really good ones coming over the last few weeks. So we're super happy to kind of get some of these questions in. And this is a way we can kind of give you a personal shout out for not only submitting the question, but also kind of highlighting your thoughts and questions uh, and be able to get us to answer them. Because I, I love doing this kind of stuff. Yes, but. sir. All right. This is from John B. Uh, Gents, I discovered y'all's podcast recently and I'm loving the content. I've been crushing episodes during my commute and have probably learned more in the last three weeks than the previous five years combined. Uh, I have a scent-related question I'm hoping you might have an answer to. I remember watching an old deer hunting video on VHS in the 90s where a guy talked about scent control. He said a Native American hunter told him that he only ate vegetables for a few weeks before deer hunting so he didn't give off the scent of a meat eater. The premise was that predators emit a unique scent signature that prey picks up on. Presumably, the deer wouldn't spook as easy when encountering human scent if it smelled like more of a herbivore than a carnivore. Have you all ever heard of anything like this? Seems like the idea might have some merit based on the discussion in episode 315, which is uh, The Truth About Scent with Tom Brownlee. Fascinating episode. You should go back and listen to it. Episode 315. Uh, what are y'all's thoughts? Thanks. All right. We'll start with you, Jakob, because uh, you just had at the Mobile Hunters Expo in Kalamazoo mm-hmm. someone talk about scent. Uh, can you maybe like kind of tie that in a little bit? I don't know if they s- said anything yeah, that... Yeah, Dieter never went into that detail, but Dieter's going to be on the podcast here uh, at some point this fall. I have heard that. Um, I have heard that, at least that theory, from some other individuals before. And um, I've also heard... And this is like getting crazy extreme, and I don't think we ever really discussed this with, with Tom Brownlee, but I'm talking about getting Tom back on the podcast as well. Um there is supposedly, and I want to say it might have been Michael Yates, uh, one of our buddies who talked about this, a, um, not a supplement, but there is a oral, I'm going to call it a supplement you could take that supposedly kind of helps with some of this, I don't know, internal odor. <laughs> um, internal I'm sure, odor. I, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure Michael probably write in about it and tells exactly what it is. I can't yeah. remember. Actually, I think he talked to me about that at the expo. He was, he was talking about that. Yeah, and, and something that you'd take like 10 days before. And he, he's kind of, he's, he's a really interesting guy. Um, I don't know, again, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I have no idea. I, I don't know exactly the merit on that. The thing is, deer are still going to smell you. So, whether you smell like a meat eater or you smell like a vegetarian, I think humans still have a certain smell to them. Yeah. So, it's like, I don't know exactly how that would work so much and plus i'll be honest i'm not eating vegetables only for bro, a week or two weeks before going hunting nah, especially I, for the whole hunting season bro, I, I hardly eat vegetables as it is i'm not eating only vegetables for yeah. two. It ain't happening yeah uh andrew's pretty much on a carnivore diet right now so those deer definitely be like oh you know red flags going up when they, when they smell Andrew. <laughs> yeah they smell me they smell death yeah they're like get away from him yeah for sure i don't know man i i have heard that before yeah. i've actually read that in books too that uh that like native americans would do that and that's cool and interesting. Um, I would like to know more about it. Not something I would ever do, but I, it, it, I mean, it's thought provoking. At the end of the day, it, do I think it works? No, I don't think that would work. But I could be wrong because it's like, what are they smelling? Yeah. Are they smelling your breath? 
Are they smelling your laundry detergent? Are they smelling your freaking truck seat where you were sitting in your truck on the way there? Smelling uh, gas on your boots. Yeah. I mean, like, they're, they're, they're going to smell all that. And the, then the shampoo that you used two days ago. Yeah. Because that, I like, again, tying it back toward to, to the dog thing. Like, I think that our dogs have, have taught us a lot about what is like realistic when mm-hmm. it comes to scenting and scenting conditions. Now a deer has a better nose than a dog, but at the same time, like, you know how great a dog's nose is mm-hmm. and how a, a dog can pick up on like scent that will just blow your mind from like days before, like that, like they can pick up on so much that, that you wouldn't think they could pick up on while at the same time, they also miss stuff that you don't think that they should miss. Absolutely. Which is why I think a lot of the scent control stuff that people talk about, I think is maybe a little deceptive. And I'm sure you got a lot to say about this too, where it's like, People start using a product or, or whatever, and they have more confidence, and so they try stuff. Maybe they go in, they're a little more aggressive than they think they should be, and they get away with it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, the deer might have just not smelled you, bro. Like, my, like, I know that when I get a smelly freaking quail from a quail farm, when I'm training my dog, a live quail, and I go put it in a clump of grass out in the middle of this field, and, like, my dog should obviously smell it. I can smell it. And but there's something going on with like the thermal. Well, what do you mean you can smell it? Like you when you're holding the yeah. quail, you can smell yeah, the quail. Yeah, like yeah. it has a very like obviously the dog can smell it. Smells thing. very birdy. It smells very birdy. It smells like yeah, and it smells like a little barnyard, you know. And you put it in this clump of grass, and you leave it there for ten or fifteen minutes, and then you bring the dog in to see if they'll point it. And I know where the bird is. I know what it smells like. I know that it's strong enough. Obviously, the dog can smell it. But there's something happening with the the thermals or the wind or how that sense interacting with the disturbed vegetation and the dog will be all over this thing and cannot smell it, especially in, in warmer temperatures. Well, versus, let, me, let me ask, can you not smell it or is it not in strong enough concentration that he's put it going on point? I don't think he can smell it because like you, you flip it around and you have favorable scenting conditions mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden he's a hundred yards downwind of it and he, I mean turns on a dime and goes straight to that thing or even like pepper will do it like she'll she'll point like 50 yards off of something Mm -hmm. or boone did it in wisconsin on our first grouse that we shot he pointed from like 45 yards away and but then there's other conditions where he will be all over this thing and like doesn't know it's there and when he does eventually find it you can tell when he finds it like that body language changes like immediately but i just bring that up to say that like scent doesn't necessarily behave like how i thought it did before i got a dog mm-hmm. like do you yeah feel yeah definitely similar? the dogs have taught us a lot for sure like and then also conditions like in episode 315 tom brownley talks about like the hardest scenting conditions is colder dry weather and a lot of people think cold, which i did not expect yeah people think it'd be like hot and dry but like hot weather like the way the molecules work with hot weather it makes them uh he talks about the episode it's like they're more not active uh in colder climates, like the molecules and everything aren't moving as rapidly as it, when it's hot. It's kind of like if you blow up a blow up a balloon, you blow up a balloon like partial the way through. You go sit it in the sun, it's going to expand. You put it in a cold car, it's going to contract. Mm-hmm. Same thing with the molecules, scent molecules, of how rapidly they're moving. Um, but the easiest scenting condition that he talked about, that Tom Brownley talked about, is warm humid weather which we deal with a lot in the southeast yep. especially early season but even throughout the year like you'll have those warmer days with higher humidity and th- that scent 
can travel further and it can be a stronger scent in those condi- conditions versus a cool or dry weather, mm-hmm. uh, lower humidity specifically. That's why like if you go in areas where it's very, very dry, uh, like lack of humidity, which we don't really deal with in the Southeast, like low humidity for us is probably like maybe 20, 25% low humidity, which those days is like amazing. But you go out to Montana and it's like 8% humidity. Yeah. And if you get straight in the 20s, people are talking about how humid it is. I'm like, dude, this feels amazing. <laughs> and, um, yep. And it, again, it's kind of interesting, like when you start getting that drier, those drier conditions, how much more you can kind of get away with it. I've seen it with the dogs, like how the dogs will struggle in the super dry days. But also another thing is like heat, I think directly affects, like, because we've seen it with the dogs, if a dog isn't properly conditioned, and again, a deer's a little bit different because they're always living out in these kind of environments. If they're not properly conditioned and gets like super hot to the point that dog starts panning, the dog can't smell if he's panning. Yeah. And that's exactly what Tom Brownlee talks about. Like super hot conditions, the dog gets overworked. He's not, he or she's not smelling if he's panting, if they're panting. They can't, mm-hmm. they can't, it doesn't work that way with a dog. Um, so, you know, I've never really seen a deer pant other than like a doe getting chased by a buck or a buck just like worn out, you yeah. know, rutting and everything. Yeah. But it, it's like, again, you know, in, in those conditions, like Pepper can hunt a lot harder if it's 25 degrees outside you know, with a, with a wind chill, maybe in the teens, then she can, if it's 85 degrees outside with yeah. no wind. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that, that's also something to take in consideration, but not to get too much on the rabbit hole. I'm not sure about the whole vegetarian thing. I'm not doing it. You have at it. <laughs> if it works for you, dude, you, you message us back, but I, I'm not, yeah, that's, that's, that's a no go for me. So yep. you, unless you go on that, that vegan vegetarian diet. Yeah. So, but anyway, next Q and A. All right. This is from Hunter Marlowe. Looking for any kind of advice or intel towards hunting a swirling wind. I hunt down on lake. I'm assuming that's uh, and no matter how favorable my wind is, when I get in the tree, it always swirls or changes four directions. I'm still able to harvest deer, but looking to better my chances of not getting blowed at by them nosy does. You should bleep that. Okay, I will. Um, thanks in advance. Uh, keep the podcast coming. So, on that lake... Um, I'm actually a little familiar with that lake to, to give people like a background that lake is surrounded by hills. So it's all kind of like hill country around it. And I think that has a lot to do with like why the wind is swirling so bad. Yep. Um, so, well, what's your take on this? All right, so if you're in an area where you have really bad swirling winds, I'll go back to episode. I can't remember. The, I can't remember the number, but it's, uh, with, uh, Rusty Johnston from Arkansas. He's hunting the mountains up there and it, he didn't even mention it this way, but one of his favorite days to hunt, because he likes hunting those draws, those drainages, where typically you're going to have a lot of swirling winds. He loves hunting it on light and variable condition days, where you're dealing nearly just with thermals. Uh, so rising or falling thermal based off whether or not you're in exposed sun or if you're in a shaded hillside. Mm-hmm. Same thing around the lakes, same thing around the water, same thing if any kind of swirling wind conditions. Like If it's an area where there's a ton of deer activity, Anytime there's a more than a two to three mile an hour breeze, you have swirling wind there. The only time you're really going to be able to hunt that effectively is on one of these super light and variable condition days. Typically, it's going to be some kind of day with a high pressure. Yeah. It's going to be probably three to four days after a front's pushed through, and it's kind of everything's settled down, and you have that really just stagnant air. Those are the times you're going to be able to hunt those locations. Mm-hmm. If it's any kind of higher wind velocity, unless you can get up high and hunt it, it's going to be extremely difficult. Um, and even if you get down close to the water's edge, if it's really steep around you, you're going to have eddying, swirling winds sometimes. Also keying in on this, whether you're hunting it in the morning or evenings, 
in the evenings that that air is going to pull out towards that water so if you hunt it a little bit lower and again a light and variable condition day where again there's not much wind speed again less than two mile an hour wind speed you can hunt a little bit closer to the water and you're probably going to have a little bit of that, that thermal pull especially the last 45 minutes of light especially if you're on say the western side of the lake so you're on the side that the sun's setting and there's a ridge between you and and the or between this between the setting sun there's a ridge between uh where you're set up on the water and the sun if there's a ridge there it's gonna be shaded there even earlier so you're gonna have an earlier uh falling thermal than if you were on the east side of the lake if you're on the east side of the lake and the sun is setting to your back it's gonna be a lot more sunny you're gonna have a lot more kind of a, a mix of thermals right there and a rising thermal until that sun sets down across the ridge on the other side of the lake from you so that's something else to pay attention to i personally have seen this in arkansas when i was hunting up there in the mountains where i was on a eastern facing slope it was two o'clock in the afternoon it did not get dark there until about 6 30 almost 6 45 and because i was on this eastern facing steep slope by two o'clock in the afternoon it was already a falling thermal it was completely shaded it was light and variable conditions and i had a falling thermal three to four hours before you would ever experience a falling thermal if you're always on the western side of this ridge line so that's something to really take in consideration is where is the shade going to happen the quickest and pay attention to that and then hunt low in those areas mm-hmm. on light and variable condition days and you're going to have a lot better hunt you're gonna have a lot better opportunity and also i've learned in those areas and we've interviewed other guys talk about this if bucks are bedded or deer in general are bedded on that eastern facing slope for you know during the afternoon there's a lot higher chance they're probably can get up and move around earlier in the afternoon when that thermal starts switching and again it could be happening you know two hours before the other ridge line the eastern the western facing slope ever has a falling thermal you could have deer up and moving around because they feel that falling thermal they're gonna start moving in elevation they're gonna start feeding a little bit earlier just because of that shade and just because that thermal switch happens earlier so yeah. I, I would focus on afternoon hunts focusing on the western side of you know say that lake uh focusing on light and variable condition days on morning hunts you can do the exact same thing on the eastern facing slope where you're hunting a falling thermal you're not hunting a rising thermal you're hunting a falling thermal again in an area that it's not going to get a lot of sun activity and a lot of thermal generation until much later in the morning maybe 10 11 12 o'clock before you have a rising thermal there when that sun gets up a lot higher yeah um so i I would take that in consideration in those general areas yeah no those are excellent excellent points uh i couldn't have said it any better myself and the cool thing about being on a lake is sometimes on a lake you can really see those thermals happening and uh, i have a i would put a reel out one time uh where i was out fishing one morning and you could see the thermal pull coming down this creek. So there's kind of a, it's a small lake, but there's a decent sized creek coming down onto this lake. And it was early in the morning, it was right around daylight. And the lake, you know, I was the only one out there on that lake that day. And the, the lake was like glass. I mean, it, there, no movement whatsoever. But then I come around this bend where this creek is coming in. There's a large valley that drains out of the woods and comes down to this lake. And when you when you saw where that creek came out it's like ripples coming down that creek and i was like oh that's kind of neat and so i went up there and as soon as you turn that corner you feel that that breeze hitting you in the face and that's that thermal pull in the morning and pulling uh, down yeah that that thermal pull pulling down in the morning and you could just see it like very plainly and you can see where the thermals are affecting stuff more as well so that that was also kind of another neat thing so maybe like when you're out in the especially in the mornings if the lake's a little bit calmer you'll be able to see that and actually make a play like you know when you get to see it in person i feel like you can maybe put two and two together better um 
So be looking for that maybe early in the mornings. That's that's something that's always kind of cool. Um, the other thing too is in hill country, uh, it's really I mean, dude, this it's like it's just something you have to go do yourself. But I think you can somewhat predict the wind and what it's going to do in some situations in hill country. Most of the time you can't, but if you have like a very straight valley that's coming like north and south and emptying out into the lake just as an example and you have a nice north wind well you you're you're probably going to have a pretty consistent wind if there's not a ton of like little bends and and crooks and crannies in that thing where that wind's going to start kicking around and swirling like peninsulas coming out yeah like like if you don't have uh where the creek makes like a 90 degree bend or something because like the wind is going to act similar to like water flowing over terrain so as the wind is coming over that terrain when it goes over a hill it's going to curl over the top and it's going to eddy right there and it's going to kind of curl up on itself or when it hits like a like a sharp bend in a valley it's going to do the same thing it's going to curl and it's going to swirl right there in the bend of that valley and uh the obviously milkweed is really good for this smoke bombs are excellent for it too go to go to the fireworks stand or or order them online and maybe don't do it in season but uh if you can go out somewhere and set off a smoke bomb especially me and jacob did it in turkey season we were out listening in a cutover one morning and i happened to bring one and i set it off and just watching what that smoke actually did was really cool and fascinating we filmed it a little bit we should have brought the drone out for that because what the what it did is it basically just it it was a cold morning it was before the sun was up it was kind of that twilight time thermals were falling we're on the side hill and this this drainage kind of goes down into a thermal hub and it's not like the it's not like the smoke went down to the valley like down straight downhill and then turned and went into the thermal hub it was wrapping around the side of the hill getting sucked straight to that thermal hub in a straight line so it wasn't like traveling down and then going to the hub it was going on a straight line to that lowest point and then when it got down there it just kind of hung for a while you know it, it moved and then it got to that lowest point and it settled and that smoke just settled all over the place and you can actually see what your scent plume looks like in that situation so I would recommend doing that, and uh, and it's a, it's a real exercise in frustration, like trying to actually play the wind in hill country, and that's why thermals are, are so important. And also, on that same vein, you can also predict kind of where the wind will maybe be a little bit more dead uh, and try to focus more on those areas. Like even if you have somewhat of a breeze coming through, if you can find kind of dead areas where the terrain or the vegetation kind of kills that breeze a little bit and you can get on the back side of that where you're sheltered from the wind, then even if you have like a six, seven mile per hour wind day that's maybe unfavorable because of how it's going to swirl throughout that terrain, you can maybe find a dead spot. And in that dead spot, you can still kind of play the thermals a little bit. So uh, you can get very complicated with it. But ultimately, it's just something you have to go out there and pay attention to and, and like try to learn it you know and pay mm-hmm. attention to it uh that's a great question though yeah that's a great one so we got a review uh we got a, a couple more q a's but we'll save them um so again if you want to submit a q a guys hit the link down the show notes you can submit your q a get as technical in your questions as you want um 
And uh, yeah, just appreciate those. Those are those have been awesome. Or of course, you can go over to the website again, the SouthernOutdoorsman.com. There's a Q&A form tab there, and uh, it's pretty interesting. Oh, this is a great one. Yeah, you All can right. read this one. All right, this is from Rambo Bambi, so, and this is on that's a, that's a good one. Yep, this is on Apple Podcast. So again, I know a lot of you guys listen on Apple Podcasts. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, go leave us a five star written review. We try to read this off on all of the outro or, or, Friday, or these Thursday breakdown episodes, and love to kind of get some feedback, just what you liked about the show, and uh, just some takes. And this is a pretty good one. Oh, yeah. Rambo Bambi. Uh, first of all, five stars on the name, uh, but he left five stars. Love it and learning one podcast at a time. This podcast is absolutely amazing and everything a Southern hunter needs in his or her life, whether they are just getting started or having or have been hunting for years. I enjoy listening to Ke- Jacob catch the deer spirit every podcast when he hears some good tactics or anything he can apply to getting a nice buck down this fall. This man, Jacob, sounds like a deacon in a Southern Baptist church after hearing the pastor say, he didn't have to, but he did. The, a- <laughs> the accuracy there oh, it yeah. is. He didn't smart. have to, but he did. Yeah. <laughs> hey, man. Yeah. Oh, dude, I love it. The accuracy. The accuracy. And that's why you should watch the video podcast, because you get to see Jacob squirm and make faces, and he's like so excited he can't contain himself. Yep. So, fun stuff, man. Appreciate that review. Um, we're up to... 1,030 reviews now. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. 1,000 reviews. I appreciate that, guys. Mm. Yeah. But, so. yeah. Other than that, uh, appreciate everybody listening to the podcast. We've got some unbelievable episodes, guys, coming out this fall. We have been networking like some madmen and getting guys on that you've never heard on any other podcast. These are people that you've probably never heard of unless you lived in their little community. Um, but they're all just hardcore deer killers and, and from a bunch of different states in the southeast. So I'm super excited. Again, we're getting a lot of new blood on the podcast uh, and, and some guests I think you guys are really going to enjoy. So make sure you, you know you stay tuned for this whole fall. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. It's funny enough, we post social media posts about the episodes every single week on Facebook and Instagram and all that stuff. And there will always be someone in comments like, man, where's the link to the podcast? I'm like, you follow the page, but you don't subscribe to the podcast. What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> so, you know, go do that. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. Make sure you're also subscribed to the YouTube channel. Again, the Southern Outdoorsman on YouTube, because you'll be able to watch the video podcast. You'll be able to see some of the hunt films coming out later this fall uh, that were from last year uh, and a lot more come out on YouTube. So make sure you're subscribed both on the podcast and on the YouTube so you don't miss anything that we drop. But appreciate y'all listening. And we'll catch y'all back here on next Monday's episode from the Southern Outdoorsman doors in the podcast. Y'all go ahead and write down the dates, June 28th through June the 30th. Go ahead and just mark those off your calendar so you can be at the Dalton Convention Center in Dalton, Georgia for the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard a a ton of content from that expo last year that we posted. Uh, We talked about it a ton. Look, if you're the kind of person that listens to this podcast, this show was literally made for you. It was literally designed for you, which means you're going to love it. You know, all the best companies in mobile hunting are going to be there. A lot of the best deer killers in the Southeast are going to be there. A lot of our past podcast guests are going to be there. It's just, it's going to be an incredible event. And hey, if you've been looking to either get into a saddle or maybe a mobile lock-on setup or just a different kind of tree stand setup, I'm telling you, it's worth the investment to go to this show because they're all going to be there and you, you will get to try all of them in person before you buy it. So you don't have to order something online and then wait for it and then try it when it comes in to see if you 
really like it, you're going to get to go put your hands on everything all in one day, test it all out, and figure out exactly what works best for you and have it taken care of before deer season starts. So like I said, go ahead and put it on your calendar, guys. It's a no-brainer. You got to be at the show. Again, it's Friday, June 28th through Sunday, June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. We absolutely cannot wait to meet you guys there and talk hunting. So we'll see you at the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo in Dalton, Georgia.